to this week's episode of The Art of Science and Controversy. Today we're going to be talking a little bit more about volcanoes, asteroids, and some of the less anticipated effects that they could have on the global climate. So joining me today is... Nevene Vankovic, or more commonly known as Miss I in the classrooms. A professor of geology and earth science at West Vancouver Secondary, and we're going to be talking about nuclear winters, the effects that they have on the climate, and how exactly they can occur. So, Ms. Ivankovic, tell me a little bit about yourself and how you came to study science. Yeah, so I work right now as a high school teacher, um, teaching science, of course, and my focus is earth and ocean sciences. So when I got into science, I initially thought that I was gonna study chemistry, and then took a turn and I thought, you know what, I'll try this earth and ocean sciences thing. Mm -hmm. And after taking the first couple of classes, I fell in love. I liked how it was, um, you could see it all around you and you could experience the science more. And mm -hmm. it also connects in with, there's a bunch of physics and chemistry that also gets thrown in. Yeah, so it satisfies that itch of chemistry, but it's more malleable, more tangible. Yes. Alrighty, that's fascinating. So let's start from the beginning then, as far as nuclear winters are concerned. What sort of conditions are required to cause them? How can they occur? So with a nuclear winter, what it is is a significant cooling of the Earth's surface. So in order for that to happen, we pretty much have to have some sort of particles that are blocking out the sun's energy. Mm. So what ends up happening is in order to get warming, we need the sun's radiation. And so our greenhouse effect does a good job of filtering out the harmful rays, but also trapping some of that sun's energy to warm the planet. Mm -hmm. Now, if it's not absorbed, what can happen is specific particles, instead of absorbing that sun's energy, what they'll do is they'll reflect it back. So it never actually enters the atmosphere and gets to the surface. So it's like an opposite greenhouse effect. Yes. And so what ends up happening is, for example, with the asteroid, um, this is one of the most famous examples of a nuclear winter. What happened is that asteroid hit the Earth about 66 million years ago. It hit the Earth, and what it did is it sent a bunch of particles into the atmosphere. Um, and so what happened with those particles is now they prevented the sun's energy from coming in. And mm we can have, they basically created this nuclei uh, for clouds to form. And we have two types of clouds. So we have clouds that form closer to the surface. This would trap heat energy. And we have mm -hmm. clouds that form further up in the stratosphere. And these ones reflect the sun's energy. And these are the ones that ended up forming. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. So the particles acted as sites for the water to precipitate on yes. and form clouds. Exactly. And did that selectively so high up that all of the light was reflected as yes. opposed to being stored. Yeah. And so none of that heat none of that light energy actually reached the surface and got transformed into heat energy. I see. Um, Are there any other events that might cause these sorts of conditions, like the, the Tunga volcanic eruption very recently? I heard there was some concern that might cause nuclear winter or some degree of cooling? Yeah, so it it depends. Um, so what happened with the asteroid specifically is that it it ended up releasing about 300 gigatons of sulfur. 
Wow. So, yeah. So it's just such a massive amount. And what happened is, um, well, this is actually new research, but it was the angle that the asteroid actually hit the surface. Apparently, it was the deadliest angle that it could have hit. Um, this is still new stuff they're looking into. But just in comparison, um, humans release about 40 gigatons of carbon per year. Mm. That asteroid hit pretty much instantaneously released 300 gigatons in like a minute. Wow. And so what ended up happening is it was such a massive amount that was released um, that there was about a 20 degree drop in temperature. Wow. And it took over 30 years for the earth to get rid of just that pure amount of now sulfur particles Mm -hmm. um, that are in the atmosphere creating a nuclei for those clouds to form. Mm. So the other thing that I mentioned is when it also hit, not only did ash and other material rise up, but also the force of it pulverized minerals that were present. So this is minerals like gypsum um, mm. that happened to be present at the site where the asteroid hit. And that actually, the pulverization actually released more sulfur uh, particles. I see. Then if it had hit somewhere else, like a few minutes later. Possibly it could have been different. Um, And so is it possible for us to have a nuclear winter? Definitely. As soon as you're releasing a large amount of particles or uh, aerosols into the atmosphere, if they go high enough and generate those Mm. high altitude clouds, you're going to get a cooling effect. Um, Would we have an eruption in the near future that could produce that amount of sulfur particles or other aerosols that could go up that high. Um, hopefully not. (laughs) Fingers crossed. (laughs) Yeah. So that, that's the main thing. Um, the other thing with the Tunga eruption and other larger volcanic eruptions is that they're still quite disruptive on our climate. So Mm. not including what humans have done. Um, volcanoes are the most disruptive to the climate because they will have a short cooling period. That's where you have the aerosols in the atmosphere Mm. and they create those clouds, but eventually that gets rained out. Mm -hmm. And then what happens is there's also a lot of CO2 that got released as well. So you'd have this cooling period followed by a warming period. It's like a flip-flop, double whammy. You have lots of cold uh, seasons which would affect plant life and animal life and then directly after that the system is starting to evolve to the cold and then bam you get the heat that and that's the big thing Uh, and so if you have that cooling period for a long enough time you start wiping out the organisms that are adapted to a warmer climate and then you get the warmer climate and that wipes out now the, the organisms that adapted to the cold that's really interesting. I'd never thought of a that sort of longer-term progression. I've always thought of just, bam, here's the issue, a few, few years later it's gone, but no. So that's why um, some of the, I believe the largest mass extinction event was due to the Siberian traps, which is this area where you just had a massive volume of lava just spew out continuously. And so initially you would get that cooling, but eventually there's a, an increase in temperature because mm-hmm. you also have these massive amounts of carbon dioxide that are released, um, mm-hmm. which as we know, affects the greenhouse effect and we get a warming period. 
Hmm. That's very interesting. I, I'd never thought of that. Uh, what other climate issues uh, could large volcanic eruptions cause, like geologically and tidal waves, stuff like that? So the other, the most damaging that it could be is actually if we get a period of darkness. So mm. almost like a volcanic night, I guess. Mm -hmm. So you get enough ash or aerosols in the, more so ash in this case, but you get enough that you would have nighttime, or it looks like nighttime, mm -hmm. uh, because you actually have no sunlight penetrating through. Wow. So if you could get a large enough eruption, what would happen there, worse actually than the nuclear winter, is that because you have no sunlight, your photosynthesizers die. So there's your base of the food web. Mm -hmm. um, and this could actually be potentially even more damaging uh, in the oceans where we have so much phytoplankton yeah. that form a massive part of the food chain and that release most of our oxygen. So now, theoretically, if we had a long enough volcanic night, um, we could completely mess up the ability to release oxygen and actually change our atmospheric composition. Now, I don't know if there would be an earthquake eruption or, or a volcanic eruption that mm. would be large enough, um, but it's a possibility in a worst case scenario. Yeah. And then as far as uh, more tangible uh, issues go that we could maybe do something about, uh, what would generally be the effect of tsunamis and earthquakes from these sorts of eruptions? Right. So. With a lot of volcanic eruptions, if there, there's basically two types of volcanic eruptions. You could have an effusive eruption or an explosive eruption. So mm -hmm. effusive, the lava is not very viscous. Um, so it's, what happens there is, is the chemistry. So if you have lava that forms on the oceanic or passes through the oceanic crust, it do, it's very thin. And so it doesn't have a lot of time to collect siliceous material. So, so compounds that have silica in them. So this actually makes the lava very runny. And so it just pours out. So these types of eruptions happen all the time. They're happening all the time on the seafloor. And because there's not a lot of pressure buildup, we have small earthquakes. So mm -hmm. those ones are fine. The big issue is when we have the explosive eruptions. So mm -hmm. these ones pass through continental crust, which is a lot thicker. And so it can pick up a lot more silica. I see, and makes it more viscous. Yes, and so the silica polymerizes so it makes it a very viscous texture. And mm -hmm. so what happens is, as it even starts to slightly cool, it causes all these gases to no longer be dissolved in the lava, and it starts to build up pressure. It'd be the equivalent of like shaking a pop bottle. Mm -hmm. And then when it eventually breaks, that's where we get this release of lava and ash and everything mm -hmm. else. And at that point, what usually happens is there's all this buildup of pressure and that triggers an earthquake mm -hmm. and that then triggers the volcanic eruption. Um, the big danger with anything to do with tsunamis is if that material is coastal, there's a good chance that a lot of material is now going to fall mm -hmm. into the ocean and possibly trigger a tsunami. Um, I see. The problem is, is that we just don't have a lot of great monitoring. I see. Is And so is there any way with the monitoring that we do have and what we do know about these volcanic systems, where they are, is there any way to prepare for tsunamis and earthquakes and things like that? 
yes and no. <laughs> uh, so unfortunately, what we do know about the earthquakes, so volcanoes actually we know we can prepare the most for. Mm -hmm. um, ha what the problem is, is that we will get data or seismic data that we've had some small earthquakes and we mm -hmm. get an idea, okay, if the volcano is active, small earthquakes mean there's going to be an eruption. Mm -hmm. We just don't know when. So you might have an evacuation for the area where they think there'll be an eruption, um, but you might have to evacuate for one or two weeks. Now, yeah. a lot of people can't afford to miss work for that long or uh, start mistrusting the scientists or even the politicians that have them leave their home for such an extended period. I see. And it's also possible that it's, um, that we, you know, see these earthquakes, but we actually don't get a large enough earthquake to have a break in the volcano to trigger an eruption. Mm -hmm. So with volcanoes, we can usually predict that something will probably happen. It's just a matter of, do you want to evacuate everyone? I see. So it's not like with the hurricane where you see it approaching land, you know when no. where it's going to hit. You have to be much more um, predictive and balance the trade-offs yes evacuations and so one of the things there is that what they end up doing more is mitigation so they'll try and build channels for the lava to go through so oh. it kind of flows like water so what they find a lot is that it will flow along the paths of rivers because it's just carved out already mm -hmm. so any it takes the path of least resistance mm -hmm. so there is some mitigation that can be done um Especially with things like earthquakes, if they know they're in an earthquake-prone region, um, there could be mitigation that's done. So just to, to lessen the effects of the damage. Mm -hmm. um, but even there, you know, it's really a question of how much money are you willing to invest? Yes. Because there still will be damage. It's just a matter of how much damage are you willing to accept? Mm -hmm. um, and of course, you know, if it's human lives, you can't really put a price on that but it is mm -hmm. expensive to make all the upgrades um, and from an economic perspective it ends up being that the the wealthier a nation is the more money they lose due to a natural disaster because you just have more expensive yeah there are more things there things. to be broken and really when it comes to being prepared i like to compare vancouver and japan so Japan is an extremely earthquake-prone region. Mm -hmm. um, and Vancouver, we know that there will be the big one. Mm -hmm. uh, and so in Japan, they still have damage, but the buildings are a lot more earthquake-proof and people are a lot more prepared for an earthquake if it happens. Mm -hmm. um, they have a lot more barriers for tsunamis. Um, they've just invested a lot more money into being prepared for an earthquake. And mm -hmm. um, the problem for Vancouver is that, well, for Japan, the nice thing is that, well, maybe not nice, but <laughs> they get earthquakes quite a bit. Mm -hmm. So it's easy for them to justify spending all this money to I avoid see. having to spend it later. It's, it's sort of like investments in that sense. I could take this $10 mm -hmm. and I could spend it on candy today, or I could invest it and get a lot more I in a see. year. And they see the effects of earthquakes all the time, so they're in, willing to invest not only for the future, but the current it's as well. It's current as well, because they're seeing those damages right away. Mm -hmm. Whereas for Vancouver, in that sense, it's a bit trickier because we know that it 
eventually will happen. Mm -hmm. It's just it could be next week or it could be another 500 years. Yeah. <laughs> and unfortunately, our ability to predict an earthquake happening, um, it's I think we're at about half an hour prior to it happening. So we get a, we can get a warning about 30 minutes before it hits. Yeah, barely enough to evacuate. No, and at that point, they actually don't let anyone know because they think that the panic would that it would cause, uh, it would just cause a lot of traffic. And so it's more likely that people get caught on, for example, the bridge. Yeah. And at a nine magnitude earthquake, those bridges are collapsing. Yeah. So to avoid things like that, they'd actually just have everyone go about their day and say nothing hope for the best uh, <laughs> but, well that's good to know <laughs> yeah but you know don't worry don't if it worry. happens it's going to happen it, eventually yeah. so accept uh, it I personally guess. i don't i don't stay up at night worrying about it if yeah. it happens it happens yeah on the topic of these volcanoes and earthquakes mm -hmm. Other than the Vancouver one, which we know is going to be be big and we know is going to happen, are there any volcanoes that uh, look like they may might make very large eruptions, might be a very large concern, either due to their location or just the size of the magma chamber? And do we have any volcanoes in mind? Mm -hmm. So for that one, it would definitely be Yellowstone. Mm. Um, so Yellowstone, it's still... It's a super volcano. That's kind of the term they've dubbed it just for the sheer size. And mm -hmm. um, the big concern there is that if it does erupt, how much material would it erupt? Um, and so it's the hope is that it would not be like the Siberian traps where you just had such a massive volume of lava pouring out mm -hmm. um, that that also released a large number of CO2 um, and that it's more that the eventual climate change that it would cause. Mm -hmm. So the concern with Yellowstone is that if it does erupt, the amount of ash that it would release, and um, they're concerned it might cause that, I guess, volcanic night, um, where we would lose a lot of plant life function. And then the other thing is that it could trigger a nuclear winter. So mm -hmm. if we did have Yellowstone erupt, if it released, or the amount of the volume of what of the particles it would release, whether it's ash or um, sulfur aerosols, that would likely cause those um, clouds to form in the stratosphere, as I was mentioning. Mm -hmm. And so there the concern is if we get that nuclear winter, how will our agriculture adjust to that? Yeah. Um, the, big, the big concern with volcanoes is rarely, well, right away, the immediate effect we see are the people who mm -hmm. are affected that mm -hmm. day who don't survive the uh, actual eruption. But historically, what we find is that most deaths due to volcanoes are due to the climate change mm -hmm. that happens afterwards, and less so that humans, for example, can't survive um, the change in temperature, but more so that our food supply can't. I see. So we might be able to survive a, let's say, for 10 years, a five degree cooling, but maybe the that's cold enough that in the winter there's more frost or more snow. So our wheat or corn or whatever other mm -hmm. um, crops we're harvesting, they don't survive. So you end up triggering a famine. And that's the 
of course we're concerned about the immediate effects, mm -hmm. but those effects have more than double the number of people dying just historically. Mm -hmm. um, it's a little bit tricky to have a direct correlation because because the uh, excuse me <laughs> um, because it's not directly affecting. We're we're assuming, but we can find that in the next we have a giant volcanic eruption. Um, and in the next 10 or so years, we see this climate shift slightly mm -hmm. and not for a long time. Um, but within the that decade, we also see large famines, even on the other side of the world. So we can attribute those to the climate change caused by the volcano. Mm. And then you worry about other things like uh, social pressures and issues as well, possible so, warfare. Yeah, so that's the thing is that anytime you have famine or a reduction of resources, if there is an area that has those resources, now everyone wants those resources. And so that's going to cause a lot of social pressure or, and like you were saying, we might even have, um, volcano refugees, right? Where they're in an area that got absolutely destroyed by the volcano. It's not livable right now. Mm -hmm. Um, and so they're evacuated or they're escaping from it. Um, so we don't know what kind of social pressures that that could also cause. Mm -hmm. And are we expecting that Yellowstone eruption to be more effusive and passive or just a massive explosion throwing ash everywhere? Well, so it seems like there's research to show any scenario. <laughs> uh, there's, there's some scientists who think it's being way overblown, um, mm. that it, it's not showing enough activity to even indicate that there could be an eruption in the next, in the, any near future. Mm -hmm. There's other scientists who are saying that we need to be prepared in less than a hundred years, there's going to be an eruption. Um, some are saying that even if there is an eruption, it will affect the United States, um, mm -hmm. where the volcano is, mm -hmm. but it won't necessarily reach the rest of the world. Um, so there seems to be a massive range of predictions yeah. and Unfortunately, it's just too new of a science. Uh, it seems sort of weird, but we didn't actually have the theory of plate tectonics until the 1960s, 1970s. Really? Wow. So even just what we know about how the Earth moves and what would cause these volcanoes, it's less than 100 years old. Mm -hmm. Yeah, barely so, 50, 60. Yeah, so it, we're still doing a lot of research and they, we just don't don't know yet. Huh. That's fascinating. Where can people go to learn more about volcanoes, plate tectonics, and the effects that they can have on the climate and mm -hmm. people? So what I, I mean, other than obviously studying geology, mm -hmm. uh, but what I would recommend is if you're interested in just finding out a bit more on volcanoes and getting your toes wet, so to speak, uh, National Geographic actually is an excellent choice. Um, they have some pretty good explainers that cover the basics, and then they do a lot of case studies where you can look at specific volcanoes. Mm -hmm. um, and it is, I would say, a credible source. Mm -hmm. um, if you are looking at getting more specific scientific information, you'd like more detail and a bit more mm -hmm. of the science behind it, um, I recommend uh, Physical Geology. So it's a textbook. It's, you can find it at BC Open Textbooks. It's a free textbook, it's an online PDF. So if you were looking for more of the technical science behind it, that's what I would recommend. Okay, that sounds good. Uh, well, I guess, do you have anything last you wanna say? Or I mean, the world is a dangerous place. The earth is 
quite hazardous, but we've survived this long. Yeah. I wouldn't worry too much about it. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Knock on wood. All right. Well, I guess that pretty much makes it for uh, this week's episode of The Art of Science and Controversy. So I hope you guys have enjoyed. You can always feel free to follow us on Instagram at tasac.podcast. That's T-A-S-A-C dot podcast, where we do post some uh, little short clips and takeaways. And I guess we'll see you next week. Have a good one and goodbye.